make it your ambition that every time you have a prompting from the Lord that you think just might be him, to go for it, to call the friend that you think you're supposed to call or to uh, go back and, and offer something to that stranger or to w- whatever it may be. And then allow that to be kind of your love offering to God, to say, I I so desperately want to hear you that I'm going to regularly stretch myself beyond my comfort zone, and I'm going to then inherit the stories and the awkwardness and everything in between. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is Season 2, Prayer. Hey everyone, welcome back to Episode 3 of the Rule of Life Podcast, Season 2, I'm sitting here in the studios of The Bible Project in Portland, Oregon. Thank you again to our friends at The Bible Project who were kind enough to loan us their podcast studio. And I'm sitting here with Gemma. Good morning. Good morning. This is day two. We're recording this over 48 hours. And Reward, great to see you. Good morning. And Tyler Staten. How you doing, man? I'm doing really well. I'm happy to be here. I just finished my heart coffee. That's not bad at all. (laughs) Gemma, you have... Again, two twins back at home, I eight do. months old. Is your husband still alive? Forty-eight hours. You know hours what? They're they're on... doing absolutely fine without me. It Does seems. he have help? Is it just him alone, or is yeah? There we we lined up some in, people or... to you know come in and help with the morning hustle, getting the the two <laughs> older ones to school. Yeah, but they're they're doing good. It's amazing that you flew across the country with that uh, to be here. We're really grateful. Well, thank you, John. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're so welcome. Well, the four of us are working through three stages or types of prayer, talking to God, talking with God, listening to God, and being with God. On the docket for episode three is listening to God. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, is where there is a profound shift in our life of prayer from speaking to listening. And it's a very, I think, very important step forward in the spiritual journey of a disciple of Jesus. Um, I remember my mentor and theology professor saying to me in seminary, the most important thing in life is learning to hear God's voice. And I just remember hearing that Mm -hmm. as a young seminarian. And he approached it almost like a problem to be solved. Like, this is a major problem for most people, and we need to come up with a solve for it because it's the most, and I remember thinking the most important thing, not a really important thing, (laughs) it's the most important thing. But at the same time, it's where a lot of Christians, I think, at least in the stream of the church that I've been in for most of my life, start to get really nervous. Like when you round that bend from speaking to God to listening to God, a lot of people are like, whoa, gravitational force, I'm off. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out here. So it... It brings up for a lot, not all people, for a lot of people, it just brings up desire. But for a lot of other people, it brings up fear and trepidation. Why do you guys Mm -hmm. think that is? Yeah, this is definitely the episode that some people will be listening to and leaning in, like rubbing their hands together. Yes, finally, (laughs) this podcast is getting good. And of course, there will be others that are immediately turned off and are like, yikes, I thought I could trust these people uh, (laughs) until this moment. And I think that that 
that fear comes from one of two places typically, uh, not always, but typically, uh, those who lean out and those who I think lean in with that kind of tenacity. There's kind of a maybe an overemphasis on either mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. One, the primary place is for some there's pain yeah. related to yeah. hearing God's voice. And yes. That pain can result from another person saying that they heard God's voice and it being used in a way that was manipulative or at times even abusive in someone's life. Um, and, and often people's most painful experiences in church life are tied to someone else using the God told me line yeah, mm-hmm. or using that sentiment. As even. a weapon or an excuse yeah. or a justification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's other times when it's me. I'm the one who thought I heard God's voice, and then it led to pain, not uh, flourishing. I, I was speaking to someone at my own church community just a couple of weeks ago who was mm-hmm. just dealing with pain of, man, I I really have been trying to practice listening prayer. I felt God leading me in a particular direction, and it led to uh, great disappointment. And so, that, you know, I think that there can be fear or hesitation or trepidation yeah. uh, because of that. And then finally, I would say, I think some people, for some people, what is unfamiliar is scary. Yeah. And yeah. so if I grew up in a tradition... Yeah, it's scary just because it's new. Yeah, or yeah it's, scary because it's new, scary because... Uh, I have a spirituality that I actually feel like pretty good about. And so if there's an aspect of it that's new, to some that would be an invitation. I think a, a healthy response would be an invitation of like, yes, there's more. There's more here. Th- yeah, there's there's other ways to know it's like God. like whole other layers and dimensions that, yeah, are open to me. But I think for for <laughs> some it can be threatening. Almost like, uh, you know, if you discovered... Yeah. Uh, a whole new side of your spouse years mm-hmm. into marriage. And it's like, well, I thought I knew you, and you're telling me that you've you've had this hobby that I've never known about, and suddenly a decade in, I'm discovering that that you love tennis. And, you know, it's like, yeah, and you could have been playing tennis with me this whole time. And then, for, you know, that, that can be threatening because, well, what if I've been missing out? Or what if those people that I was so turned off by actually had something to say? Or what, you know. And anyway, I, th- I think that those three categories are where a lot, the buckets that a lot of our fears fall And into. if you have a bad experience, that's a surefire way to like inoculate you against the real thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, if so Absolutely. somebody dropped the God told me bomb on you and it was manipulative or immature or it was a cover for sin, mm-hmm. then it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And now you have like this emotional allergy almost to what, was intended to be a vital part of your life with God. Absolutely. And I love, I think the constant in what you guys are saying is the simple fact that, right, when it goes from this objective truth to a subjective reality, then we are faced with aspects of our humanity. Then all of a sudden, it's before, right, if God is still this objective being and I'm reading about him or I'm hearing about him, then um, I can do with it what I will. But the moment... I have to deal with the fact that he speaks back. It makes it a dynamic, a relational dynamic. 
then that brings uh, my 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 own fears, like what you said, my own perspectives, my yeah, own frameworks, shadow side, my shadow side, your and, bias, and, your perspective. Exactly, it brings right the good and the worst of who I am into that particular dynamic, and that that's scary. It's kind of like you know, in this internet age of dating, it's kind of like you have this perfect avatar that you've been talking to and everything, and you finally have to have the first date in person, right? There's going to be a trepidation like, what if I'm wrong? What if they see me for who I am? Because with revelation comes responsibility. So now that I get this revelation that he is, he exists, now, right, that means I have to leave a certain way or whatever that looks like. So I think it is freaky. It happened for me to where I was like, all right, so God speaks. Okay, what, what does that say about the obedience, what does that say about all this thing? But you know, listening prayer isn't the only thing that's subjective. Like, I think I grew up in a church tradition where, and this was never said, and I don't even know what the the theological elites in my tradition would have said in answer to the question, but the impression was that God used to speak, yeah. and a long time ago he said some really important things, <laughs> and thankfully, some people wrote them down, preserved them uh-huh. in the library that we call the Bible. And then heaven's been silent ever since. <laughs> and so we study the Bible to hear God's voice. Yeah. And there's a lot of truth in that. Like yeah. God did say a lot of really important things. And thank God they have been preserved for us in writing. And uh, the study of scripture is a vital part of my life. Again, we're sitting in the studios of the Bible Project, which yeah. we all adore and love and are grateful to God for. But, you know, I think there, I grew up where it was like, well, all of that listening prayer stuff and everything that comes with it, and we'll talk more about that, that's all subjective and open to interpretation and it's dangerous. That can hurt people. Mm-hmm. And my answer was always, well, yeah, but so is the interpretation of scripture. I mean, <laughs> find me somebody who's been hurt by listening prayer, or the prophetic, or whatever, and I'll yeah. find you 10 people who have been hurt or even ruined by the misinterpretation of scripture. Yeah, that's right. But yet we don't say scripture is too dangerous. Actually, some, we don't realize this, historically, there were long streams of the church where scripture was considered too dangerous to let ordinary people read. Oh, wow. At its worst, before the Reformation, you know, you had Wycliffe burned alive and such for translating mm-hmm. the Bible into the common tongue because it was thought, this is too dangerous. If people get a hold of this, yeah. they could misinterpret it and they could mess themselves up. And I think there's a lot of kind of people in the Bible church or Bible stream of the church that feel that way about mm-hmm. listening prayer and interactive prayer and the prophetic. And yet the reality is the the abu- the misuse of something does not negate the rightful use of oh, it. Oh, that's good. I think it's important to recognize that we tend to engage with God in the way that we engage with others. And if you think about listening, listening involves being quiet. And if you think of just conversations that we have with each other, most of us, if we're honest, prefer to talk and listen. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I mean, think of the last conversation that you had with someone. How often were you listening to understand versus like mm-hmm. listening just to respond and to think about the next thing that you want you to say. say? Yeah. <laughs> and I also think like listening involves being quiet. And mm-hmm. if most of us are honest, we avoid being alone with ourselves yeah. and our thoughts at all costs because we don't, we don't actually really want to look under the hood of our lives. Mm-hmm. And discover what's there or not there. Uh, We're scared to see the things that we reach for, Mm -hmm. um, for comfort or security outside of God. And in listening, we need Mm -hmm. to be silent. And in silence, those things come up. There's something I think is really important to name, which is that 
some listen I don't I wouldn't want any listener to hear so if you threw the baby out with the bathwater come on just be open mm-hmm. you know because there's often very legitimately painful and redemptive narratives that people carry within themselves attributed to experiences in different types or different expressions in community so I went to I was a part of an unhealthy expression of the charismatic. This is a hypothetical, not my actual story. But (laughs) I was a part of an unhealthy expression of the charismatic that became abusive in a number of situations. Therefore, I left that community, and then I found a beautiful expression uh, that sort of closed the door to this and, and isn't open to hearing God's voice in some ways, but is open to hearing God's voice through the reading of Scripture and things like that. And that's been an incredible community where I've spiritually flourished. So I, I want to be clear about this up front. What we are not saying is that you should go back and you should trust communities that that's are open good, to Tyler. the charismatic. What we are saying is you should trust Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you should trust that even though the you like Jesus's voice through the Holy Spirit was abused in some ways by a community that you were a participant with in the past. Don't close the door to Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't even engage it in community yet, but we're going to get into some practices that involve community and others that can be practiced personally. But don't close the door to yes. a way that Jesus might want to come deeper into your life. Yeah, because mm-hmm. as we speak to those fears, a lot of those fears are not unfounded. They That's are right. based in real threat, real danger, real experience. Mm-hmm. What we're just saying is don't let that close you off to a whole dimension of life with God. That's right. That is just deep and rich. That is. That is. And another thing, just a really quick segue on that is there's also sometimes the fear of how the moment you say God said, right, there's something in us as humanity that looks at that person who just said that almost with the side eye glance of really God talks to you. Even if we believe God talks, we believe in those things. It's almost like uh, we fear the judgment of the arrogance of standing up and saying, I just heard from the creator of the universe and this is what he said. And I've seen a lot of that in charismatic circles to where even if people genuinely hear from the Lord and they believe he said something, there's such a fawning humility in how they present it to people to where they have to distance themselves and their idiosyncratic weaknesses from the power of and the the beauty of this voice that just spoke. So sometimes I think it's just that. It's like we don't want to be the guy who hears God all the time. Yes. We don't want to be that person. (laughs) Yeah, that person. Of course, we're all that person in some area (laughs) of our life. That is true. So, John Mark, why don't you give us a summary of the teaching that contributes to this conversation? Yeah, in session three, um, I open with that famous story that I adore from the nine. I think it's from the late 90s, right before Mother Teresa's death, when Dan Rather sat down to interview her on 60 Minutes. And at some point, you can watch this on YouTube. At some point, you know, he asked her, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she was quiet for a minute, and she said, I don't say anything. I listen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there comes a point in all of our spiritual journey where we desire a more interactive relationship with God. We desire to speak to Him and continue to do that, but we desire also to hear from Him, you know? And you see this almost in little children. Like, 
you know, when your kids are kind of where your two kids are, like, you know, three, four, five, they just talk at you a lot. <laughs> Actually, I have teenagers. They still do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I distinctly remember the day when my son turned to me and said, so, Dad, tell me about your day. And it was like the floor just <laughs> fell out from underneath my feet, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's, that's a, a step forward in his maturity. And I think that this desire in us to hear the voice of God is built into the architecture of our heart by the Spirit of Jesus. So, you know, I start in John chapter 10, Jesus himself, his beautiful teaching, you know, about how, and in the metaphor, he is the good shepherd. It's where we get this language of Jesus as the good shepherd, that the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And of course, this is not a new idea to Jesus per se. He's riffing here on Psalm 23, but this idea of hearing God's voice goes all the way back at least to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which prior to the Lord's Prayer was the central prayer, the creed of the people of God. And it's called the Shema because, and that's Deuteronomy 6, if you're not familiar, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, Jesus made this the most important command in all of the library of Scripture. And it's called the Shema because that first word here is Shema Israel, or hear, O Israel. And it's a, it's a slippery word to translate from Hebrew to English, and it's translated here, but that doesn't really capture the meaning because in Hebrew, like maybe a better translation would be to heed because it means to listen, but also to obey. And this is arguably like the heart this and soul. Like this is the center of life with God is learning to hear his voice, to listen and then to respond in trust and obedience to his direction, to, as Jesus said, to follow his voice. So, um, you know, I work through in the teaching about six ways that God continues to speak to people, starting with Jesus himself and then scripture and then so on and so forth. And of course, the first and primary way that God speaks is through Jesus. And every other way that God speaks from the Bible to the prophetic to dreams always comes through and goes back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I poke the bear a little bit in that a little pet peeve of mine is how evangelicals refer to Scripture as the Word of God, which to my knowledge, Scripture never calls itself the Word of God. <laughs> scripture uses that phrase, the Word of God, a lot, and it's referring not to the Bible, but to Jesus and the message of Jesus and mm-hmm. his kingdom. And uh, Scripture is the Word in the sense that it carries this message of Jesus and his kingdom. But ultimately, Jesus is the Word of God. And so every other form of God's speaking voice, you know, I think of Hebrews, like God in the past spoke to us through the prophets, but now has spoken to us through his Son, through whom he made the world, you know, in this beautiful, exalted image of Jesus. So uh, hearing God's voice begins and ends with Jesus. But I kind of work through ways that we hear God's voice, the last of which is listening prayer, which is just one moniker for this aspect of kind of hearing God's voice in quiet prayer. And I address the question a little bit, you know, which for me has always been a conundrum, like, why, does, why doesn't God just speak audibly? Why mm-hmm. doesn't he just, like, once you get to that spot in your discipleship, would you genuinely desire to hear his voice? Why doesn't God just shoot you an email in the morning? And that's what <laughs> I do. I text people. I, I tell my children when I want something from them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's obviously mystery here and complexity. But my basic argument is that God doesn't have to. 
communication is guided thought. So if I say reward, think of a sunset. Mm-hmm. What's in your mind right now? A sunset. A sunset. <laughs> there we go, yeah. <laughs> and that's because speech is, is not to sound creepy, but it's essentially a form of mind control. That's right. Like when you give someone your ear, when you listen to them, you're allowing their words to guide your mind mm-hmm. and your imagination. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty of New Testament theology is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is not only around you, but is deep within you. And the Spirit of God has access to your mind, to the flow of thoughts and perceptions and feelings and desires that flow through your mind all day that we call consciousness. And he can insert and interject his voice, his thoughts, his perceptions, his feelings, his desires into that flow just like we do in conversation with one another, with family, and with friends. He can guide our mind or our thoughts and our feelings. God doesn't have to speak audibly to us anymore, any more than Alexander Graham Bell needed to like write a letter to a friend after he had invented the telephone. Like Mm -hmm. it's a step backward, not a step forward. So, but then I end just speaking a little bit honestly about how quiet God's voice often is and the need for what the writers of the New Testament call discernment, Mm -hmm. the ability to sift through all these different voices and sort fact from fiction, God from me, from culture, from pizza I ate last night, from (laughs) a word from somebody else, truth from lies, and so on and so forth, and how ultimately what's necessary is a quiet, surrendered heart to the voice and the will of God, just saying, God, speak to me. I want to listen and obey. That's session three. The prayer practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community that combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the prayer practice, you will not just learn about prayer, you will learn how to pray. The end goal is to integrate prayer more richly into your rule of life so that you can arrange your life around God. The prayer practice is completely free, thanks to the generosity of our friends in the circle, a group of people from all over the world who give monthly to Practicing the Way. Available now at practicingtheway.org. Gemma, I'd, I'd love to kick it to you. How does this hit you? You know, you have unique perspective. Uh, of course, you come from Ireland, and there's just, I mean, the, the history of the Church of Jesus on mm. your island is is about as good as it gets in some <laughs> moments and about as tragic as it gets in right. others. But a rich legacy that you carry in your in your DNA and in your person. You also live in New York City, one mm-hmm. of the loudest, noisiest, most obnoxious and wonderful and right. <laughs> aggravating cities in all of the world, but you know, you're kind of a contemplative at heart. So like what what does this bring up for you? Yeah, I, I think it's wild that sometimes we discover our love of silence in very urban settings. And and maybe that is because we need to initially seek out silence um, out of desperation. Yeah, maybe, for survival. Rather than discipline, yeah. Um, but I, I haven't always been someone who has leaned into contemplative practices. I, I remember before moving to the U.S., I was an elementary school teacher, my job was pretty all-consuming. My life and my schedule were jam-packed. And if you had asked me 
what I wanted in my spiritual life. You know, I probably would have said something like, oh, I really want to spend time with God. I want to just linger in his presence, <laughs> but I'm so busy, etc., etc." And then we got to LA where we lived for our first two years when we moved to the U.S., I didn't really know many people. My husband was a grad school 14 hours a day. We didn't even have the internet for the first while. And I I still didn't spend time with God. And I had to kind of confront that I'm not spending time with God because I don't want to. And and I had to realize I'm actually, I'm scared of the silence and solitude because I don't know who I am when I'm not busy. Mm. I don't know who I am when I'm not being active. Um, but I will say that when I when I faced that ugly truth and was able to bring that um, into the open with God um, and finally consented to stillness and silence, it was the thing that most radically changed my spiritual life up until that point. Um, St. John of the Cross said that silence is God's first language. And I think we never will really learn to know the voice of our shepherd until we can slow down and be stripped of all of the, not only the external noise and distraction, but like looking at the interior clutter of our lives and sit in the discomfort of silence, because that is how we learn to be fully attentive to God. But I think for most of us, moving from that activity to receptivity is mm -hmm. is really hard. And it didn't come naturally to me either. Yeah. And, you know, you're not saying, right, that silence and solitude are the same thing as you can only hear God's voice when you're alone, you know, because I would imagine, you know, not to speak for you, but that we hear God's voice in all sorts of ways and all sorts of settings, one of which is through other people and through right. the church and through the preaching of scripture. But you, I think what you're saying, and feel free to correct me, is that silence and solitude are indispensable to cultivating a listening ear toward right. God. And there, there's an aspect of life. I mean, Henry Nouwen said, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. And he just, you can say it that bluntly when you're Henry Nouwen. I can't say it that <laughs> bluntly, so I have to quote him, you know. But um, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I'm also saying that in a, in a very personal way, I, had, I think I had come to a point in my relationship with God where there was an invitation for, for a more wordless way of yes. engaging with God. And I was recognizing that if this makes sense, I was I was engaging with things like listening to worship music and reading my Bible as a way to almost avoid God. Yeah, using God uh, to hide from God. Right, yeah, I think sometimes we do that. I we think laugh that, because I've done that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Which takes me back to another insight that was offered us in your conversation with Strawn, John Mark. The thing that I've learned about silence is that just being silent isn't necessarily a spiritual practice the way we bring ourselves to it is um, and we can we can try to practice silence in terms of the physical not being around say listening to a podcast or music um, but the real work is done as we grow this inner silence and we bring ourselves to that space in in a sort of rested innerness and that actually for me is about lots of things um I had this sort of experience once praying and saying, God, I, some days I can hear your voice really clearly and, and other days I can't. 
why is that? And as I prayed, I sort of had this picture of this beautiful crystal lake and I could see right to the bottom and I felt God saying like, this is me, this is my voice, this is my accessibility. And then as I watched, I was throwing all the stuff in from like Netflix to podcasts to Spotify to just social events and conversations. And as I did, it, it touched the bottom and all the sand kicked up and all the sediment came up. And God said, my voice is the same. But sometimes you overcrowd your life so much that you you can't hear me. You can't enjoy the waters of my of my love and of my voice. And for me, that was my first lesson in silence being like, man, if I don't stop for a minute, and that for me that includes reading books. I can I can get on the book train pretty bad and fill up all my spare time reading books. And the silence that I need is an intellectual silence. I need to put those books down and just let God fill that space. Sometimes it's podcast, listening to podcasts while I'm doing the dishes or driving. Sometimes it's just that all of my prayer is talking to God and not receiving. Um, and as I look at my life and sort of defrag the noise, all of that I see is noise. It's not sinful. I'm not saying it's sinful, but it is noise. And what I want to do is like push all of that noise as far to the periphery as I can to create an inner silence so that when I stop to do my silence in the morning or the evening or lunchtime, I'm able to bring my whole self to it without hitting like a brick wall at 100 miles per hour. So yes, I fully, man, the practice of silence I think is crucial. I think our communities need it. I think our churches need to practice it. Um, but I think it has to come wrapped up in the sense of like, how am I denoising my life so that I'm not bringing this volume to silence every time I arrive to it, but I'm actually able to stop and say, God, let me be still before you and hear your voice and, and receive what you have to offer. You know, I think about how your comfort level with silence is a great litmus test to the level of intimacy and relationship you have with another person. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't know somebody very well and you are alone together, you're going to fill up that time with words and activity. And that's not bad. But in all really intimate relationships, you know, let's take marriage as a, you know, of course, an example, you reach a point where one, you are comfortable in silence together, and two, you desire a kind of intimacy that goes beyond words. And, um, and I think that's kind of what we're trying to get to with God is that sense of, man, really being intimate with him, communion with him, hearing his voice, however you want to say that. But, and solitude's an indispensable part of that. But in the West, we have been so socially conditioned by a preference-based spirituality, or I think, you know, older generations called it consumer Christianity, because mm -hmm. that's our culture. So, you know, post-World War II, boomers gave us consumerism. I mean, it's in the human heart, but they gave us an actual economic system that was dependent on it. Mm -hmm. And that's not like conspiracy theory. That is historical <laughs> fact. And then we millennials, God bless us, took it a step further, about 20 steps further mm -hmm. by, you know, this mishmash of radical individualism, postmodernism, speak your truth, you know, with digital mass customization, where we just optimize our life. We're so used to architecting a life around our personal preferences and algorithms literally learning our personal preferences to make that even easier mm -hmm. that we can't help but at some level, I mean, the culture just seeps into our pores. Yeah. So we can't help but at some level carry that mentality over into prayer. And what I'm getting to here is the tragedy is what happens then is Western Christians often approach silence 
as like me time for introverts. And that's a tragedy for introverts like myself because then that time of silence, rather than becoming a time where we let go and we surrender our preferences to Jesus for him to heal and transform us, it just deepens our bondage to narcissism, yeah. you know, because we're actually, it actually is just I'm getting some me time away from the kids. <laughs> and then it's a tragedy for extroverts because they write off a whole dimension of spiritual life as, well, that's not really for me. That's for other personality types. Other people need that. Other people enjoy it. It'd be like if I were to write off community or activism or justice or something. But like, that's ah, not really my personality type. But there's a cultural value. You know, we live in a what Suzanne Cain calls the extroverted ideal. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, we live in an extroverted culture mm -hmm. in the West and anywhere urbanized now. And so it's a great tragedy. Reward, I'd love to have you kind of talk about it from your from the African perspective. Is this mm -hmm. a uniquely American thing? Is it just an urban thing? Is it a, and I mean urban in the broad sense, not necessarily Manhattan, but just, yeah. you know, out of a rural context into an urbanized one? Or is solitude, is silence, is hearing God's voice more common mm -hmm. in the world that you grew up in? Yeah, I, I think I think even in that redemptive rant, right, is essentially um, the redemption for, for the West. Or rather, let's talk about Americanism is, is essentially because the graceful lens, right, that the rest of the world looks at America specifically with is the simple fact that it's still a relatively young civilization, right? So the analogy I'll paint is when you look at either your kids and their terrible twos or your teenagers, right, and they're coming and going, they can't sit still and they can't make the right decisions, right? Older people from a macro perspective go, nah, they're just growing. That's construction noise, right? That's yes. growing pains. So I think because it's a relatively younger, it would be counter, right, intuitive for stillness to be uh, a staple within the um, American social order. So a lot of people understand that. But now to your point, then kind of uh, talking about more established and more ancient civilizations like the one that I come from, the Ndebele, which stems out of the Zulu context, the the Bantu is, <laughs> I remember yesterday when we came from dinner, uh, John Mark asked me and he was like, so what is the Bantu? But basically what it is, it's a it's an ethno-linguistic group of people, um, kind of like Slavic to where there's different countries and there's uh, 700 distinct um, languages, 400 distinct ethnicities, right? It covers about 30% of Africa, 8% of the whole world. And the reason I, I, I give this macro perspective is so that the next things I'm about to talk about, the nuance really, really drive the ethos. So I'm not just talking about a, a side sample pool in some obscure part of Zimbabwe. Like when you go across a lot of Africa, you see this, and it is a simple fact that silence is lauded over everything because we believe it speaks to the deepest existential itch that you find in humanity. And I, that is the desire to be seen. For example, in my language, when someone greets you, anyone who's Zulu or Ndebele or Bantu, when they greet you, the first thing that you say is Saubona. And Saubona means that we see you, right? That's exactly. So when I come to you, the first thing that I say to you is, we see you. And your response to that is Sikona, which is, means we are here, right? And so think about that. Uh, if, I see you yeah, and I hear. Yes, we are here. So we, wow. because what we- What if we were to come to God like that? <laughs> exactly, right? But what we believe people have agency. So we always use plurality when we address them. But think about that. So if you are, for example, in the deepest grief and someone comes and says, I see you, and your communal responsibility, right, is 
I am here. I still showed up in my grief and in my pain, right? And that's a, we see that like in the Tsoana, for example, it's or in the Sutu, you say Dumelang. The way you 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 greet greet someone is I am in agreement, and then they say we are here or we are in agreement. So what uh, from that African or from that Bantu or from a global perspective within a lot of uh, majority world context is the simple fact that in silence, we allow ourselves to be seen. And in being seen, we become a mirror for divinity. I mean, think about it. If you come before a deity, right, the first thing that you're going to do is you can't just come with words and everything. That's irreverent. You come in silence and you allow them to search you. We see this when David talks about, hey, search me, O God, and see if there's any anxious, search my anxious thoughts. And if there's any offensive way to me, lead re- me yeah, in the way lead, everlasting. Lead me in that. Because silence in those contexts. And he's is, essentially saying, God, speak to me. That's exactly what he's saying. He's talking about that. And we see this too in, um, uh, for example, the story of Job, right? The, the most brilliant orators and debaters. They show up, they have it figured out. They know why Job is going through all of this. But for three days, they come and they sit with him in silence because he needs to know that they're there and that they've seen him because that, what us sitting in silence is more important than, than what that essentially looks like. I like what Gandhi says. He says, it's better in prayer to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And so in the silence, right, from a cultural perspective, when we come before deity, we allow him to search us. And in searching us, then we know that when he speaks, he knows us and we can follow. Because even in that scripture, it says, hey, search me and then lead me. Man, that's beautiful. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm a 32-year-old who's married with two young kids, ages three and one. The primary way that I um, hear God's voice um, is probably in my, my silent prayer. Um, but also, I think in my prayers, um, when I take time to have silence and solitude, yeah, I think that's the primary way that I, I feel like I hear God, or even when I do listening prayer, um, that's not necessarily a daily rhythm of mine, but when I've really leaned into it, I felt like I've really heard from God in that way. Um, and I think it's hard for me to sit in silence before God, um, because I'm afraid of, you know, what if he didn't say anything? and I'm afraid of that silence, but I think I've, as I grow and continue to do this as a, as a daily rhythm, it's something that's become really important to me. Here's JT Thomas with some similar thoughts. What I've learned is we, as humans, we, we are probably proficient at understanding things in four, four dimensions, maybe five you know, sight, we can see, we can smell, we can, we can intake information through our smell. We can read body, body language. We can feel, uh, you know, the wind on our skin. So our senses, we're limited to our natural senses. But all of those things are ways in which we process information and, and interpret signals. But God speaks, he speaks through all of those dimensions and more. And I think that's what having eyes to see and ears to hear is really the Lord sensitizing you into first through the natural senses that we have, the human senses, uh, our ears, our eyes, our nose, our mouth, our body, our skin. He speaks through creation. 
consistently. I mean, it's in scripture, all of creation declares his glory. And so I think you've got, you know, folks who are like, well, he's given us his word, it's written, and that's the only way he speaks. Eh. And part of, I think the fear is, well, you know, if God is speaking to you through that tree, what if it's not God? What if it's mm-hmm. the enemy? Yeah. Well, the truth is when you, when you know the word, then you know his character, yeah. you know his personality. So we can't be afraid though, because you're mi- you're missing the fact that he is, he's an artist and he's always speaking through his creation. And I'm not saying God can't, because God, he, you know, in the biblical record, he spoke through a donkey, <laughs> like literally yes, through a donkey. Stuff there, yes, yeah, there's stuff there. Now I've not had that happen to me, you know. Um, you know, God, throughout Scripture, we see even the the idea of signs and wonders. Yeah. And Hebrew, the the Hebrew language is pictorial. Like every letter is a sign and a symbol. And so it's like the language of God is signs and symbols. It's not exclusive to them. Mm. But then we all have a bandwidth. Uh, we all have a frequency, I, I'd yes. say. And I think, I think going back to fasting and prayer, when we all, no matter how we're wired, have that as a baseline, we have the practices of fasting and prayer ingrained deeply into our walk with the Lord. Whatever frequency we hear best through, it becomes highlighted. Well, what about for the rest of you? I mean, let's pivot here to kind of ways that we hear God's voice, you know, and we're talking about silence as one of the primary kind of places where we hear God's voice, but in that silence or not in silence, in community, what are some of the ways that we hear God's voice? Yeah, for me, uh, the, the first way that I hear God's voice is in Scripture. Yeah. Um, you know, that was probably the place that within the tradition and culture and background I come from that I was taught to first access God's voice. And uh, the maybe specifically the ways I hear God's voice there is for years, I've had a habit of reading every morning a psalm and some other portion of Scripture. And uh, I, in the psalms, I typically read until I hear my own voice in the psalm, which... Meaning uh, meaning what exactly? I mean, I, I'm working through a psalm, and then there will be a line or a sentiment hmm. that feels like, oh, that is That's giving me language yes, for, what? for something mm-hmm. I'm carrying right now. Uh, a thought pattern I'm having, a desire that I have within me. An emotional state I'm in. Exactly. And so, and then that will become a springboard for me to add my words to God's word in response to him. Like God reveals what is within me, which is often a mystery to me. I then acknowledge it and I begin a dialogue with God about that. Um, and, And then another practice I've had for a long time is simply to find myself in the story, meaning the biblical story. And what I mean by that is it seems like a way that God often communicates to me is that seasonally I will I will find a biblical picture that I feel I'm inhabiting at the moment, and it will become an anchor. So right now for me that picture is David in the Valley of Elah, just hmm. before the fight with Goliath. Yeah, from a story, got as, it. Yeah, as he's picking the five smooth stones. And there's a lot of reasons that that connects with what I think God's call is on my life at the moment, 
um, what I think uh, are, are the threats to my life at the moment. And so I return to that picture often. I actually have a discipline of returning to it every Monday morning, reading the passage again, and just finding myself anchored to this picture of God, this is your invitation to me until you speak something new. And, and that gives me a way to inhabit the biblical story. Because you feel this story, which is timeless, is for all people, mm-hmm. all places, all times, but you feel the Spirit is somehow impressing that particular story into your heart and life for this particular time in your particular life. Exactly. And it is through that story that I am making sense of what's going on in my life at the moment. So I And it's it, guiding your life at some level. Right. I'm trying to have a biblical imagination. You know, like at the end of the day, the the claim of scripture is that there is a more true reality than the contested world that I pass my days within. And so it seems that one of Scripture's invitations is to become so in touch with that truer reality that I can live in a half-redeemed, half-fallen, already-not-yet world by the Spirit's invitation to me and by the Spirit's reality rather than just by the circumstances and reactions and emotions that I have today. And a way that uh, maybe a portal that God has opened for me to walk into that through is here's a picture, it, anchor yourself to it, return to it regularly, and that will allow you to inhabit this Tuesday as someone who is not just making their way through an agenda of plans and interruptions, but as someone who has a God-given call in their life and a biblical invitation for how to live this particular season of your life. Hey, Tyler, you mentioned finding yourself in the story, and I do that as well, but in a slightly different way. Um, one of the ways that I, one practice that I engage with regularly is imaginatively engaging in scripture. Um, it's really helpful to do with stories from the gospels. And what I simply do is read the story a number of times until I'm really familiar with the details. And then I just close my eyes and I imagine that I'm there and I imagine what I would see or hear, what I might smell or even taste or touch. And I just ask God, what do you want me to notice? How do you want uh, this text to become alive and active in me today? Like, um, let's say it was the story of Jesus walking on the water to be with the disciples. You know, I'm going to imagine myself in the boat and I'm going to imagine the smell of the ocean and the fish Mm. and the sensation of being tossed around on the waves, the feeling of the water splashing on my face, the salty sweat on my lips because I've rowed for three to four miles, the pain in my hands from tightly gripping the (laughs) oar. And then, you know, what would it be like to see this figure moving towards me and then realize that figure is Jesus? And And I I like to imagine who I might be in the scene, you know, like, am I Peter who wants to walk on the water and be with Jesus? Or am I one of the other disciples in the boat who's like, no, thank you. I will stay (laughs) in the the relative safety of this, this boat. And I imagine Jesus saying those words to me, take courage. It's I, don't be afraid. Um, In what ways am I afraid right now? And in what ways do I need to see Jesus coming towards me in, in the storms of my life right now? So that's a way that I situate myself in the story, but in a slightly different way. And I, I think 
I think that we're pretty good at engaging with scripture with our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really feel like God is inviting us to to know him with our whole selves. And, and I think when we engage in something that's imaginative, it's sort of this integration of like right brain, left brain, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I also think it brings this integration between our mind and our heart and our body in a way that makes the scripture come alive in a fresh way. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, like John Mark, you were talking about introvert and extrovert before, that the ways, like engaging the scripture imaginatively, find yourself in the story, reading the Psalms till you hear your own voice and it becomes your prayer. These these are not personality-based ways of engaging the scripture. If we only engage a scripture intellectually, we run the risk of scripture being something that we understand. An abstraction. Right, but it's not the means by which we interpret the world. Yeah. And the consequence of that is seen on the pages of the Gospels, right? That no one knew the scriptures better than the Pharisees, then the one who fulfills the prophecies they've memorized is in front of them, Mm -hmm. and they don't recognize him. And then there's other people like Simeon and Anna— who see Jesus and immediately are able, the scriptures they are the They see scripture lens, in Jesus. Right, the, they're the mm. lens through which they're seeing this moment of any other couple coming to do the eight-day dedication of their baby at the temple. Yeah. And, and so scripture becoming the lens through which we understand, inhabit, and interpret the world has high stakes for, yeah. for the way that we get to engage wow. God and enter into his redemptive story. And there, you know, there are different ways of reading scripture that accomplish different purposes. Right. You know, like, so none of us are against like an intellectual, didactic, study-based reading of script. Again, we're sitting at the Bible Project table. <laughs> we are we are big fans. Yes. We're 100% for it. But, you know, throughout the Christian tradition, there has been this other way of reading scripture that was not in tension with, was not in opposition to, was just another layer of it where you would read slowly and prayerfully, really listening for God's voice to you and to your life and to your community. You know, in ancient Hebrews called it meditation. In the New Testament, now that we have the Spirit of God in us, it takes on a whole new kind of color and flavor to it. You know, the monastic tradition has long called it Lectio Divina, which is Latin for spiritual reading or Godward kind of reading. And, you know, I did not grow up in a church tradition where you know, kind of all the monastic contemplative stuff that I, I love, it what was it was not there at all, mm-hmm. and uh, it was very much a kind of Bible focused, Bible teaching kind of church tradition. Our church was literally called the Bible, a Bible church. Um, but you know, I was fortunate enough to have the model of my mom in particular, my dad too, but especially my mom. Both my parents were first generation followers of Jesus. And my mom, it's really interesting, there's a whole other story here, but she went deaf uh, in her 20s, right after she had me, which is a whole other thing. Um, And it it had a profound effect on her and even on her way of interacting with God. And I just remember from my childhood, no matter how early I would wake up in the morning, I would walk out and mom would always beat me up. And sorry, not beat me up beat me up out of bed, beat me awake, whatever, not beat me up. <laughs> and she would always be there before me mm-hmm. and sitting in her little armchair with her Bible open on her lap. And rarely was she like taking notes and scribbling things down once in a while. Most of the time she'd like look down 
And then sometimes, you know, as your kid, you sneak up on your parents or whatever. And she was mm. deaf, so it was really easy to do. <laughs> um, she could not hear me. Wow. And you'd see her look down, and then she'd just kind of look out the window, but with like, this, like, unfocused kind of glaze on her eyes. And she wasn't looking out the window. She was looking at something else. Mm. And I began to realize she had this way of reading Scripture. She would not have called it Lectio Divina because that was not in her church tradition, but she, it was Lectio Divina. She was just reading it prayerfully, slowly. My mom's a very calm, rational, thoughtful person. There was no like wacky you know, misinterpretation of the Bible, but she was just listening for God's voice, and she'd lost her capacity to hear my voice and other mm-hmm. voices, and something about that heightened her capacity to hear God's voice. And I just, I'm so grateful to have that imprint on me at such a young age that there is a way of reading scripture that I love, that is theological and intellectual and historical grammatical, and I love it, and it's very important. But there's also another way of reading scripture where we are really just listening. How is God coming? It doesn't change the meaning of the text. It doesn't change the exegesis of the text, but God is somehow coming through this text to me in a very personal way. Mm-hmm. Practicing the Way is a crowd-funded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Pamela from Northern Ireland and I'm part of this community. To join myself and others in The Circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org forward slash give. So what else? Scripture, of course. What else? Well, uh, at some point, we're going to have to talk about the prophetic. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. Kind of <laughs> let's wade into the water, it, yeah, so. the deep end. N- knowing that there will be different levels of experience and even different ideas about what we mean when we say that, I'll, I'll just share this super simple story. Um, there was a woman who, uh, when I was church planting in New York City, that I was extending the invitation to become the kids' ministry pastor at our church plant that was, and it was this part-time could barely even pay you part-time sort of invitation as often happens with church planning. Let's call her Jane. So yes. this is this is not like the career opportunity of a lifetime. No. And, <laughs> and and this is New York City. This is the first or second most expensive city in the US. Um and and she actually was climbing the ladder and doing quite well at a full-time position in another uh company in the business world and had a promotion being offered to her at the same time. So she tells me, hey, I want you to know I also have this promotion on the table, so let me think about it. She later told me she just didn't know how to let her pastor down I had hard to say no. in the moment, <laughs> and so she wanted to let me down easy later. Um, then the following weekend, we uh, had a prayer meeting in our church. A friend of mine happened to be in from out of town. He joined the prayer meeting. He's never met Jane before in his life, and he just looks over at her in the middle of this prayer meeting, and says, excuse me, I'm so sorry, I don't even know your name, but I feel like the Lord's just given me a picture for you, and it's a picture of an abacus. And if you're not familiar with an abacus, it's one of those like counter things mm-hmm. that yeah, kids the use. They slide yeah. the beads across. That You yeah. see them in like a doctor's office waiting room or it's something. like an ancient calculator. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's a picture of an abacus, and all of the pieces are slid to one side. And... I have a sense that God's revealing to me that you're in the midst of a decision and that all the conventional wisdom is on one side, but there's a desire in your heart to choose the other one, and God's saying, go for it. 
And obviously, like, I haven't told my friend anything about this or anything like that. And the tears just begin to flow down Jane's face because it's God speaking into her own discernment and prayer process in a way that she could so plainly receive. And that's the that's the power of the prophetic. It's not a magic trick or some hocus pocus. It's a it's just a way for us to hear God's voice coming through another person's voice. Uh, and and what so I would good. say is that the prophetic is not uh, in competition with hearing God's voice through Scripture. It's in concert that's with good. hearing God's voice well said, through Scripture. Uh, so Scripture can explain... James Often the prophetic is just a Scripture coming to mind. Like lots exactly. of, in the Bible church tradition, lots of people who don't believe in prophecy will say, you know, I was praying for you this morning and the Scripture came yeah. to mind and then share. I'm like, oh, you're prophesying. <laughs> you just don't want to call it that. But they're they're together. Exactly. And, and I mean, the Scripture is even one of the checks and balances of... Is this prophetic word I'm yes. being given God's voice to me or not? It's if how it, you test it, how you right. weigh it. If it's out of in line with scripture, it's not. You know, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. But if Jane was sitting at this table right now, she could explain all of her beliefs through scripture, but she could not tell her story without the prophetic, without mm, yeah. the active speaking voice of God. Today. She could not explain her decisions, her choices. Yeah. Right. Uh, another way to say that might be that she could explain the foundation of her life through Scripture, but the shape of her life mm. she cannot explain without prophecy. And by prophecy, you mean hearing the voice of God coming to her often through other people. That's exactly what I mean. <laughs> Reward, what about, I mean, give us your perspective on this. Yeah, no, I think, uh, man, that was so well said, Tyler. I was over here, I'm taking all these notes. I'm like, no, it's beautiful. That in but I mean, Reward, but, yeah. you're at Upper Room in Dallas. That's a church that's known for kind of the prophetic mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. aspect, you know, charismatic's a loaded, loaded term, but it's a church that's known for that, for yeah. an opening to God's voice. Just absolutely riff for us. If you think about it, right, a lot of us, we, we, we study the theology of the Bible, and that's beautiful and noble, but then the sociology of the Bible is also incredibly important, right? Why did God anchor this like in a particular cultural context? And in the cradling context, in that cultural context, the, um, everything happened, the church service was communal, right? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14. He's like, hey, someone brings a word and someone brings this and, and we do this together. So the upper room then developed as a community of people who go after encounter, and then when it happens, then we collectively deconstruct. So how does that look like last Sunday, for example? So there's someone who's over the service, right? Their job is for two or three weeks before just to pray and try to divine what direction they feel like the Lord is wanting to take the service. Then when we show up, the worship team and everyone who's involved in the service gathers in a room to hear what direction it is. And if like, for example, if you're like, I feel like the Lord wants to really go after healing, then people within that room judge that word. And people are like, nah, that's not what I felt. But if there's unity around that, then the worship team goes, oh, I feel like these are the songs that we're going to go with. And so there's a direction and there's communal accountability. You go into the service and everybody gets to contribute in that. So if you're sitting in the back and you get a sense of healing, you go to the front to the service coordinator and you're just like, hey, I feel like there's a sense of this. What he will ask you is like, do you have scriptural, right? Reference, they're like, yeah, there's a scripture right here. Then at that moment, uh, he either judges or takes it to, to, to one of the elders and says, this is the direction that we want to move. And then if they're like, yeah, I feel like the Lord's on that, then 
someone gets up and explains to the congregation what's about to happen, the scriptural basis for it, and then kind of go, go, goes from there. All that to say the, re, the way that we anchor ourselves is the sociology of it was communal. There was accountability. There was essentially judging on what that uh, essentially looked like. So, Whereas a lot of times in the charismatic tradition, the prophecy is run through the grid of American individualism. Yeah, so it's just some yes. lone wolf who had this word Absolutely. for whatever. So you're saying it's, it's meant to be experienced and discerned together in community. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, 1 Corinthians essentially talks about that. If someone has a word, bring it in here. It's, it's all of that. And I feel like because we've done it that way, it, it, it helps people go, okay, this wasn't just lone wolfing. This is closer to the sociology and the church that I read about when I and read it, in the it word. It puts guardrails around Absolutely. It. And yeah. it makes people be even more open to prophetic words that's coming out there because they see those guardrails and they're like, okay, this wasn't just some weird though. There's structure. There's intentionality. At least there's intention around it enough to where I can give us a chance. So that's that's how we do it communally in a lot of ways. Okay, so th- there's prophecy, hearing from God, you know, via other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tyler, you're referring to that kind of individual, I have a word for Jane, you know. There's the communal expression that reward you're talking about of a community discerning God's voice together, you know, mm-hmm. in a moment for them and what he's doing in that gathering together. But I also think of the prophetic as almost like an umbrella for other aspects of God speaking to and through other people, you know, and under that would be all sorts of things, including, I mean, biblically, and this might make us really nervous, but dreams and visions, you know? (laughs) So Gemma, take us there. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to talk on that for a little bit. Um, I, uh, I'd never been someone who ever remembered my dreams. Like Mm. even as a kid, you know, other kids would be sitting around in school saying, oh, I had this cool dream last night. And I'm like, I got nothing. But um, about 12 or 13 years ago, maybe, I just started to notice in scripture how often God showed up somehow in dreams for people. And so I just started praying, you know, God, I'd, I'd love to experience you in this way. And suddenly I started dreaming all the time. And and at first it wasn't... But you asked for it. That's interesting. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I did. And so when it started happening, I was like, I'm paying attention here. And it wasn't like, you know, I just woke up and I was, I you know, I had this dream and I had the full interpretation of what it meant. But because I realized it was an answer to my prayer... I just started keeping a dream journal and I would just scribble everything down every morning, sometimes even in the middle of the night. And then what I would do was just sit with God in silence and ask if there was anything that he wanted to show me or anything that he wanted me to know. And it was a very kind of slow, gradual thing over days and weeks and months of doing that, that I just started to instantly recognize when there was something in a dream that was significant in some way. Mm. And sometimes the dreams revealed ways in which I was just processing, you know, unresolved pain. And and it sort of made way for me to invite greater healing from the Lord into those areas or to help me forgive people. Um, it was just kind of your subconscious, but that still tuned you into what you need to pray. Right. But then there were, there were also times where I felt like, you know, in the dream, God was showing me a particular area that he wanted me to step into with greater courage. And it happened happening in the dream then uh, help me, I guess, do that in my real life. Other times, um, 
God was showing me ways to pray for a particular person or a situation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes God would give me um, a word of knowledge or prophetic insight for a person in the dream. And then I would also be you know, discerning if and when to share that with the person. The actual sharing of anything came a lot later. But God in his kindness in that season gave me um, older, wiser people who journeyed with some of the stuff that I was able to just ask questions and like, you know, this is my experience. Is this something you've experienced? And that was really helpful to me. Um, But honestly, dreams are how I truly learned the voice of my shepherd. And that might sound really strange, but it's how I learned to know what it felt like in my body to sense God's guidance. And then that segued into me sensing that through visions in my awake time. And that is almost like how I started to journey into experiencing and, and how the would prophetic. You, how would you distinguish between a dream and a vision? Well, The dreams that I was having weren't necessarily um, always literal. Like, um, you know, maybe, for example, there was um, one time I had a dream that was a a very difficult dream. And I woke up and there was, uh, I felt this sort of, I was visibly quite shaken. And so when I sat with God and asked him about this dream, um, suddenly, a thing in the dream, I knew that it represented a particular person and Mm -hmm. a particular painful memory that had happened in my childhood. And so it was like, there were, there was almost like symbolism. It wasn't exactly Dreams tend to be highly symbolic. Right. Um, Whereas I would say that in my waking, it's more like I just, you know, actually see something literal in in like in a scene in my imagination there's still a moment where i'm saying i'm i'm having a quiet conversation with god where i'm like okay i'm seeing this um show me what what you're trying to tell me through this and so there's the the interpretation of it and then there's the you know the application of it in some way um so yeah i feel like in in dreams it's been more symbolic i've had to sit with them for longer I think it's worth saying that in in our waking life, what we know psychologically is that all of us go through experiences that then informs the way that we view and interpret reality. So if you think about something like trauma, we all have experiences like capital T or lowercase t trauma that then becomes like a filter. A grid by which or we see the world. Yeah, by which I see and interact with the world. And so without doing a lot of deep psychological work, all of us are guarding ourselves as we're awake and moving about the world. And when we're asleep, all those guards go down. And so our dreams often reveal ourselves to us. They they show the stress we're carrying, the things we're thinking about. They, they, They reveal ourselves to us. And so Gemma said, you know, it sounds kind of strange, but so I just want to point out, it would also sound very strange if we said, you know, in our dreams is when all of our guards are down. And God and never God, speaks God, to us there. God chooses not to speak to us when our guards are down. <laughs> yeah. Or human beings spend approximately a third of their life asleep. And like if God was just like, a third of your life I've chosen not to access. Like that would also be a strange thing. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense 
that God would use dreams as a particular way to speak to us and as just a regular ongoing way to speak to us. And again, I mean, again, test everything against Scripture. Go read the book of Acts and the New Testament as a whole, but in particular, Acts is a great case study. And just like keep a pad of paper next to you or a you know a note on your phone. I don't read. I don't have my phone near me when I'm reading scripture because it's it's too distracting. <laughs> but paper, whatever, digital, and just keep track. Keep make make a record of how often God speaks through dreams and visions in Acts and the New Testament. And it's a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like you yeah. cannot even make sense of the direction of Paul or Peter or the early church without the presence of God speaking to them through dreams That's and right. visions. And this is New Testament, post-Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. Scripture is being written, and God is speaking a lot. It is arguably one of the most common ways of God speaking. So um, it is a new, it's new territory for a lot of us. And again, it often requires like a steep learning curve because we're not used to learning through symbolism like you know what i mean we don't we're not a highly symbolic western culture is not a highly symbolic culture it's a more linear more literal culture so it's like almost like learning a new language you know but as we as we learn this language of god the language of our own soul our own subconscious we're learning to discern god's voice coming to us um let's talk about another aspect that Gem. i'd love to hear you riff on again you know dreams get us into this world of the subconscious and you know how God will often guide us. And this next category I want to talk about is desire. And you know God will often speak to us and lead us and guide us through these impressions in our gut or these undercurrents of the spirit in our heart. This kind of deep kind of undercurrent in us. You know Ignatius, uh, the founder of the Jesuit order, and you know what we now call Ignatian spirituality. He had this whole paradigm of of desire and how often. Our desires are what Paul would call the flesh. They're just our desire for self-preservation or domination over others or pleasure. But yet often our desires are actually the spirit of God desiring through our desire. Mm-hmm. And you know, the world is often very unsophisticated and very binary in how it thinks about desire. On one hand, you have the like Peloton, be true to yourself, you know, following the authentic desires of your heart will lead you to happiness. That's a, a great hypothesis to test. It will quickly <laughs> fail you. Um, but most of our, our generation, our culture is built around that, that hypothesis. And then on the other hand, whether it's stoicism in its modern podcast form or the ancient form or like extreme kind of religious conservatism, you have this whole like the heart is evil, the heart is wicked, you can't trust any of your desires, mm-hmm. just deny all of your desires, curb all of your desires and live by willpower. And, you know, scripture has such a, much more sophisticated and nuanced and beautiful view of the inner architecture of the human heart. So, Gemma, talk to us about how do we sift through our desires to know what's just my fear, my flesh, my whatever, and what's the Spirit of God desiring through my desire? This is part of the work you do in spiritual direction, right, is helping people sift through that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely no expert on Ignatian spirituality, but I certainly have gleaned some things that have been very helpful in my own life. Um, because, you know, we are people of desire, and, you know, Ignatius believed that God dwells within our desires, that God inflames our heart with holy desires. Um, but the reality is that there is a discernment that needs to happen there, because some of our desires, you know, there's this sort of sense of disordered affections or disordered loves that 
often we are reaching for things that are not what God would have for us, that don't lead us to greater integration. And so I think the first thing when it comes to discerning those desires is that it needs to start with a surrendered heart. Ignatius yeah. talked about holy indifference. The, and as the beginning point for discernment. Yes, the beginning point. And, and that holy indifference is not a, oh, I don't care, I couldn't care less. It's not that. It's a relinquishment of any attachment to either alternative choice. So it's, it's like, a, God, I'll do whatever. Right. Mm. It's a, a holding lightly. It's this sense of interior freedom. And once we've come to that place of interior freedom, um, that's, you know, this grounded in indifference, we can then pick up those desires of our hearts and contemplate our desires without being a servant to them. Mm. Um, and it really begins with paying attention to our thoughts and our feelings. Like it begins with noticing and then seeking to understand those leanings. And one helpful question that I have gleaned from Ignatian spirituality is Is this causing an increase in faith, hope, and love? Is this drawing me towards Christ or drawing me away from Christ? Um, which of these thoughts and feelings like create this sense of rightness, like this fitting like a glove? Where uh, where are my desires causing disintegration or disquiet or agitation even in me? And and then I think that is one of the things that really helps us to know and understand ourselves. But I would also caveat that with saying that it's not just about noticing and understanding. I think in our culture, we're pretty good at, we like self-awareness. We like knowing more about ourselves and we can actually even become a little bit self-indulgent about right. that. But Ignatius is very clear that it's noticing, it's understanding, and then it's taking action. I have to move towards the thing that is bringing me closer to Christ, and I have to reject the thing that isn't. Um, so I think that action is is really important, and and I also think that we um, there's a real role of community in that discerning process as well. Yeah. So the begin so the middle is similar to what we're used to in our culture, but the beginning of holy indifference. Yes, that's and, key. And why would God speak to you if you're not going to do what He says? unless if it's what you want, you know? And then the ending of now I'm going to follow through, I'm going to obey, you know? Yeah, well, I think we have to recognize that we are all very prone to self-deception. Yeah. Like the heart wants what it wants, you know? And I think that we have to be aware um, that, you know, if I want something and I'm already sort of feeding that desire, and it's not actually something that God has for me. You know, it's very easy to kind of self-deceive and mm -hmm. say, oh, you know what? I, you know, I'm just going to go after this thing. Um, I think that's why we really have to come to that point of of interior freedom and the holy indifference. Especially since, you know, most people's experience of God is not as loud and straightforward, at least not most of the time, but as, you know... I'm thinking of the Elijah story, the still small whisper. Yeah, and, and that's the, I think, the last aspect of a way that we hear God's voice we have to touch on before we can wrap this thing is that God speaks to us in a whisper. Uh, it's it's the, I was praying, and then I felt like God was telling me to X, Y, Z. Um, and because we're in a podcast on prayer, this is probably the way that most of us will be familiar with and try to attune ourselves to listen to God. 
I've been really helped by one ancient writer who describes the voice of God to the individual in prayer in that way as a, the, the touch of a feather on your skin, hmm. meaning it's clear enough that you can pay attention to Notice it and respond it. to it if you'd like, but it's light enough that you can kind of just dismiss it and brush it off and not pay That's attention good. to it if you'd like. And so then the question is, how do I attune myself to hear God's voice more and more? How do I tune my ear to his frequency? And I think the answer both biblically and experientially is risk. Mm-hmm. You, you have to attempt obedience in response to God's voice. And that will result in unbelievably awesome stories and hilarious failures and awkward moments <laughs> and everything in between. And uh, that is the way that we learn. I have no to stories of getting it wrong <laughs> yeah. in listening prayer. But, but that's that's the way we we discern God's whisper to us. And so if you're out there and you're just thinking, man, I'd, I'd like to hear more of God's voice in my own prayer life, I would say just make a Make it your ambition that every time you have a prompting from the Lord that you think just might be him, to go for it, to call the friend that you think you're supposed to call or to mm-hmm. uh, go back and, and offer something to that stranger or to w- whatever it may be, and then allow that to be kind of your love offering to God, to say, that I, I so desperately want to hear you that I'm going to regularly stretch myself beyond my comfort zone, mm-hmm. and I'm going to then inherit the stories and the awkwardness and everything in between. Yeah. So I think we're running out of time here, and we'll just draw this to a close. And I think, you know, hopefully my prayer for you as you're listening to this in your morning commute or folding laundry or doing yard work, whatever you're doing right now, or sitting in your living room, that it would awaken in you a desire to hear the voice of God and that, that is the desire of Jesus desiring through your desire. And often the pathway to he- learning to hear God's voice is three steps forward or two steps back. And it's not linear. It's not straightforward. But may God lead you and may God guide you. And may all of us increasingly become people who hear our shepherd's voice and follow it. <laughs>